0: Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Hello, my friends. I'm talking to you now, not from the dark place, but from the crazy place. The crazy place is the Taper, and I've got full-on Taper Madness with about eight days to go to my target race. How do you manage Taper Madness? Well, you know me. I've run 44 marathons, as near as I can remember, including, including 15 Bostons, but... Whenever I'm shooting for a specific time, and I've invested this much in the campaign, I go bonkers in the last two weeks before the race. I wrapped up my campaign with a 24-mile pace run last Sunday, and now I'm cutting the mileage back. Coach's theory on tapering and mine are, are very similar. If you've done the training and you've had a good campaign then you back off the mileage but you keep up the intensity so for instance this week I did a four by one mile on the road for a workout and this morning I did a set of 1650 meter surges along the White River Trail in Indianapolis yeah I'm still traveling full-time and on some of these surges I saw my pace drop into numbers starting with fives which is pretty amazing Mostly short, hard efforts now. Rest and tuning. Other than that, I just try to keep my brain in my head with a daily routine of stretching and light core work. And meditation and some race-specific affirmations and visualization. Yeah, no. Trying to stay sane. Taper madness. Following up on my old man rant about the people I meet down at the track... This week, there was a guy, well, last week, he was wearing those big over-the-ear headphones, you know, like he was planning to wave jets in for a landing on an aircraft carrier later after his workout. I also saw a lady walking while working on her iPad, and I don't know how she kept from walking off the track into a fence. Don't know. And of course, since I've lost so much weight... I'm back to horrifying the local populace by working out shirtless in my 1980s era shorty shorts. So my rule for shirtless is you either have to be attractive or over 50. So you can guess which I am. How's my diet going? Actually, very well. For the most part, I've stabilized just under 180 pounds which is exactly where I want to be. And now I'm going to focus on staying healthy and fueled for my race. My clothes are falling off me. And I feel like that guy in the big suit from the Talking Heads uh, Stop Making Sense video. Still the same body, just 20 pounds less of it since June. I touched uh, 175 pounds after my 24-miler this past weekend, but that was mostly water. In this weather, I'll lose 7 to 8 pounds in a long run, even though I'm taking in about a gallon of water. So that's 16 pounds of sweat in a marathon distance for me. Pretty amazing, huh? Some people are contacting me for advice on weight loss and training, and I don't mean to be snitty, but... I have to reiterate that I am not a nutritionist or a coach, and I don't want to break anyone. So I can point you to my coaches if you like, but I'm going to defer a lot of those questions, unless it's something simple. In section one today, we'll talk about the perils and advantages of being the odd man out. In section two, I'll toss around the question, can you qualify for the Boston Marathon? It's funny because I don't write posts for link bait. You know what I mean. You know what link bait is. All those posts you see that are like five simple ways to lose weight or how to do XYZ without any effort. You know, those posts, I write what I happen to be thinking about. And so I put up this, can you qualify for Boston post today? And it's getting a bunch of traffic. So, uh, so much so that I had to go back and fix all the typos. <laughs> I guess people are interested in this topic. On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. Odd Man Out. The power of different. If you want to do something important, you need to be comfortable with being the odd man out. Few things courageous or important happen in the middle of the herd. What are the challenges and the opportunities of of being this odd man out? What you will discover when you start to think, do, and act differently than the great mass of men, two things will happen. First, you will be alone and naked on your path. Initially, no one will follow you. Second, the herd will turn on you and you will be cast out. They will try it first through cajoling to get you to stop acting differently and eventually admonishments will turn to threats and eventually they will cut you out. I found a recent example of this dynamic while I was trying to get to the rice cooker in my kitchen. Now Rachel, who has been coaching me on nutrition, had warned me it would happen. I asked her how could I take the recent Gains I've made in eating healthy and make them sustainable. And she said to me, You're just going to have to get used to the fact that you're going to be the odd man out. There I was, hovering in the entrance to my kitchen, but I couldn't get to the rice cooker because my family had come home and they were concocting some celebratory dish of chicken and cream cheese that I wasn't at all interested in eating. <laughs> while I wanted to steam some rice and veggies to stay on track. And my wife got angry with me. Why couldn't I just eat what everyone else was eating? Why was I being so difficult? I was the odd man out. As I thought about what Rachel said to me this week, I realized that it it applied more broadly to our lives than just being the diet pariah. In everything you do, you'll have the choice to go along or to be the odd man out. The problem is that acting differently, thinking differently, being different, is necessary sometimes for anyone who really wants to succeed. If you stay in the inside of the herd doing only what is allowed, advised, and accepted, you will accomplish little. And what you do accomplish will benefit someone else. If you fully subjugate yourself to the herd... You not only do a disservice to yourself, but to the herd by hiding your light, your difference, and your potential from the world. It's a waste. Another consideration that we have realized with recent economic upheavals is that when the herd gets herded into the slaughterhouse, it will be too late for you to break out. Now, we are an evolving species. Your work life, your community, they're evolving organisms. To stop evolving is to eventually regress and cease. A mechanism is required to move the herd in order to keep it alive. Don't you owe it to your herd to help them move and survive? Shouldn't that be part of your value add? Of course, there are outsiders that are just plain dangerous, and they need to be shoved out and isolated from society because they are different in an evil way. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who understand the herd, but are willing to break from it, not to cause harm, but to demonstrate unique value. I propose that leaders have found a way to be outside the herd, but to take part in it at the same time. They do this by setting the direction, and in many cases, making hard decisions against the status quo. Like most things, it's a spectrum that runs from the 100% herd-like individuals that cannot fend for themselves and need to be led to consummate outsiders who can't work with the herd. Much of where you fall has to do with your personality type, but I think you can learn to break some of your assumptions and push the edges no matter where you fall. It is possible to innovate and lead from the inside, and it's your duty. How can you do this very unnatural thing? Because the herd doesn't like change. When the herd senses change, it will react to protect itself. The protectors of the way it's always been done will become antibodies, and you will be the virus. How do you create insight and change in the organization without triggering the immune response? Well, one way is to position yourself as a change agent. Known change agents are part of the herd. They have declared themselves as change agents. They are out in the open and therefore not a direct threat. And once you have declared yourself a change agent, you get a free pass to come up with all sorts of wacky countercultural ideas. It's your job to chase the sacred cows and question the dogma. The nuance to this role is that you have to have support from, or at least alignment with, the organization's power. Otherwise, you're just a troublemaker and an anarchist. You have to make the power understand that it is your unique value to bring an outsider's insight to them. You will not be one of the corporate drone yes-men. They need to understand and see this value. Leaders and the powerful in organizations like to have access to these types of individuals and insights because it gives them a reality check and a balance that they need to make forward-looking decisions. Leaders like this resource around because they can leverage it to implement change without taking direct a direct role or that risk themselves. As the internal outsider, you are a prized commodity for the leadership team. And in order to truly play this role... You need to internalize the feeling that you do not need the herd. You need to operate from a position of independence of thought and action and a position of emotional detachment. When the game plays out, you may find yourself outside the herd or trampled underfoot. Understand that and be okay with it. Own it. Change only happens when there is an odd man out willing to walk away from the herd. So this is your power. One, position yourself as an outsider and a change agent. Two, align your change with power. Three, be willing to walk away. What are some practical steps? What are some less theoretical things you can do? Well, look for projects that have a low urgency, but create high value and go execute those. Something like, hey, look at this cost-benefit analysis I did on the new partnering scenario. Another thing you can do is declare yourself a change agent. I like to think of myself as a change agent, right? You can also ask good questions, change questions. If we could have anything we wanted, what would this look like? And be emotionally detached. Hey, I'm going to do the right thing no matter what. I can always find another job. I'm here because I believe in the potential And earn the right to be a change agent. Study, read, listen to everything, especially things outside of the herd's viewpoint. Write up these ideas and share them freely. You cannot change your results unless you can change your actions. You cannot change your actions without risking the immune response from the herd. Become the odd man out. And now for today's featured interview. Morning. Morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you? You're looking for a van, huh? You're looking for a, a motorhome? Shooting high. I need, you know, I need something to get across the country in. I I talk to people all the time who run across the country, Jeff, and, and uh, so this one lady just did it pushing a Walmart baby carriage, you know, yeah. and a tent, right? Yeah. And she was only 20 something.
1: Here's my issue. This run is more about the stops that I make than it is the run itself and you know so it's like I'm running from Pocatello to Logan that's about 50 miles so I get there and icon and free motion are putting on a big kickoff thing there and then yeah. and then I run to Salt Lake City my goal is to run 50 miles a day but like when I'm in Denver we have two events in Denver when we come through Denver so I'm gonna run into Denver we'll do the first event and then I'll spend the night in Denver And then the next morning I'll get up and I'll run 50 miles in Denver to the second event. And then we're driving from Denver to Enid, Oklahoma, so we'll stop about 50 miles outside of Enid and I'll run into Enid for the 50 miles. So, you know, it's it's about doing 50 miles a day, doing the 2,700 miles, but the course that we're taking and the cities that we're hitting, you know, there has to be some nights of driving in there. And you're not allowed to sleep in a towed vehicle.
0: Yeah. Well, you're not allowed, but that doesn't mean you can't do it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd hate to have to. I'd hate to have my trip interrupted by, by like the Oklahoma State Police or something. Though it's would <laughs> I mean like uh, uh, you can't do
0: this, sir. Yeah, me and my buddies did one bike ultra where we just got one of those panel vans, you know, like the big ones, and uh, we put a love seat in the back. So even though it was a two-seater, we had four people in there with all our bikes and stuff too. So it was pretty, pretty comfy.
1: Well, my, that's my other option is just to, you know, get out the SUV and take all the seats out of it and put an air mattress in the back and go.
0: Yeah. So anyhow, let's back up a little bit, Jeff. Give us the, the 200 words on on who you are and what you do and what you're doing here.
1: You know, about it's been about six months ago now. I was, I was diagnosed with um, stage four advanced prostate cancer, probably due to the fact for three years that I ignored um, the signs and symptoms and didn't get tested. So with prostate cancer, you you basically have two ends, you know, local and regional prostate cancer, 100% cure rate, Um, stage four advanced prostate cancer, there's no known cure for. And when I look at the research and I see the numbers, you know, 270,000 men will be affected by prostate cancer this year and 30,000 will die. You know, those numbers are the same as breast cancer numbers. And yet men aren't, you know, getting the word out. Men aren't getting screened. Men aren't getting it done. And I think one of the things that has irritated me most about this is, you know, every man still thinks he has to have a digital exam, and you don't. It's a simple blood test. That's that's all it takes. So my goal is to travel across the country and get 2,700 men screened over the 2,700 miles and, you know, raise a bunch of funds for Zero the End to Prostate Cancer along the way, as well, who is sponsoring me at the end of the run for the Marine Corps Marathon.
0: Do you still have numbers from Marine Corps?
1: Do I still have numbers for Marine Corps? Um, no, because we had to uh, submit all the registrations last week. Yeah. Um, but it's pretty cool. we have 34 people who are doing it with us. You know, every one of them is raising funds for prostate cancer. It's great. We're going to have a really good time when we get the Marine Corps.
0: Yeah, so you're kicking off at Pocatello.
1: At Pocatello, yes, with you and six or seven other teammates.
0: Uh, that's my target race for the year, and I've been good. I've been uh, doing my training and not racing hopefully i'll have what it takes there it's been a it's been a very weird training cycle for me so you're going to run 50 miles a day is that you know is that something you want to do with stage 4 prostate cancer
1: there there's absolutely no negative research on fitness and prostate cancer and there that basically there's no positive research you know the problem is that you know we know little about the mechanisms of exercise effects in cancer because when they do cancer studies and they have groups, you know, the study groups, they, they don't really look at, okay, well, this is a fit guy, this is an unfit guy. They just look at, you know, how the medication affects and and, and the long-term and short-term effects of what they're, whatever it is that they're studying. So, you know, we have no measure of how a fit person survives through cancer and how an unfit person does. You know, to me, being a fitness guy, it just seems to me that the more fit I am, and the more active I am, the better my quality of life is going to be. And, you know, I hope that's one of the other messages that I can get out there. Um, but there are some organizations now who are starting to make those kinds of studies on fitness and, and its effect on cancer and how people who are fit and exercise through cancer, what their survival rate is compared to the non-fit individual.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, prostate cancer is not really a lifestyle-based cancer. It's not like colon cancer or you know or heart disease or or you know some of those things you can get by by abusing yourself. it's more something that every guy's gonna get sooner or later,
1: yeah, you know it's one in six men are affected by prostate cancer in one way, shape, or form, and i think I think one of the statistics is like fifty percent of the men in at some point in their life are gonna have prostate cancer. Yeah, you know, the good news is if detected early, it's you know 100% treatable. And you often hear the the saying, "Well, you know, prostate cancer is something you die with, and not from." Uh, right. But when you get to that advanced stage, where I'm at, and you know, then it becomes, you know, there's there's treatments, and the treatments obviously affect you know there's there's side effects to treatments, and um, you know it changes your lifestyle a little bit while you're while you're in the treatment mode, but you know, in between treatments. You know, it's, it's really not that bad. You, you know, there's medications involved and, you know, there's some discomfort involved in some situations. But, you know, again, it's, it, you know, early detection is the key. And it's just like breast cancer. You know, early detection saves lives. And that's what, that's the message we have to get
0: out. Right. Right. Oh, well, that's, uh, that's, that's good if we can get people. I get too many people I know that are dealing with cancer right now or the after effects of cancer. It's something that definitely impacts my age group. Yeah. Yeah, our age group especially. Yeah. So when you're you're doing 50 miles a day, what? so what are you going to do? Like maybe that's like, what, 12 hours of running if you take it easy?
1: Yeah. You know, my goal is you get up in the morning and do, you know, about three hours, you know, maybe 16, 17 miles, you know, get in the vehicle, recover a little bit, get some work done. Get out in the afternoon. You know, run a second segment. The same. You know, back into the vehicle, recover a little bit, and get out and do it again.
0: Basically, uh, half of your twenty-four hours you're going to spend on your feet running, so it's going to take it's going to take up some time. You're going to have a lot of alone time out there. Yeah. And the place the place you're running through is a, a bit can be a bit hostile too in terms of weather. Uh, this time of year, it's really it's you know it depends on how you hit it. Sometimes it's really bad. Sometimes it isn't bad at all. You know, the first
1: part of the journey go down through Utah and across Colorado and Western Colorado. It can be very hot because it's the desert. So I think the Utah section of it won't be too warm. I think it'll get really warm going across Colorado in the Denver that time of year until I get to the Denver side. I think down in, in Oklahoma, September is very warm. So it'll be warm through there and up through Kansas. And then I think we'll start to see cooler temperatures as I get closer to October and you know who
0: knows what can happen rain storms and wind as as we move further east but you know i'll be prepared for it yeah you just got to have enough water like you said you're coming down through the high desert so that's going to be hot but dry but once you cross over into like oklahoma and kansas you know surprisingly enough it's really humid yeah right like like oppressively humid so you get the worst of both and you get those storms that come in and sort of it's like the end of the world right exactly yeah. And
1: I'm not certain, but I think September in in Oklahoma is is tornado season as well.
0: Yeah, and as you move east, you're going to be hitting uh you're going to be hitting the eastern part of the country in uh, storm season, right? Hurricane season. Yeah. So you'll probably end up with some great rainstorms, but that's all part of the adventure.
1: That's right. It's you know that's that's what'll make it exciting.
0: Yeah, you just got to find a way to stay healthy, not get injured.
1: Yeah, I think that's why, the you know, the recovery between runs is going to be the important thing. You know, recovery boots, make sure the nutrition's really dialed in so that, you know, between the runs, I'm really recovering. And that's why. And and the sleep at night is going to be very, very important. The whole recovery process is what. And I hear this all the time, oh, 50 miles a day. And that's absolutely crazy. And, you know, as well as I do, that it's perfectly doable. You know, most of us can walk 50 miles a day if we need to. It just the the recovery process has to be right, and the rest segments have to be right. And I don't fear the distance every day
0: at all. Yeah. Like I said, you know, 12 hours is a very slow pace. That's like a a 12-and-a-half-minute mile. Yeah, exactly. You know, so you you could walk every every two minutes and still get there. So anyhow, you've been training me for this Pocatello Marathon – I was hoping we could do a little case study here for people, maybe get some, get them to learn some stuff.
1: You had a great training cycle, by the way. This is the best training cycle in a couple of years that we've been working together.
0: Well, I think, you know, a couple of things. One is I really focused on staying healthy. And the second is I just have no idea of where my fitness is. You know, a lot of times I'll hit it too hard and I'll just ignore the training and go do hard stuff just for fun. Yeah. And that's that's when, you know, the last few cycles I've been injured late. I mean, not injured bad, just pull something or, you know, something like that. But this one's been such a struggle for me that I haven't been able to do any of that. Oh, it's Saturday and my friends are all going out to run a 20-mile trail run. I think I'll join them, you know. Right. So, yeah, I've been staying on point. I think that helps a lot. Still, I'm, I have no idea where my fitness is. I mean, I feel really confident. I feel light and fast. But, uh, you know, it's, it's been a struggle been a struggle i won't lie to you you know my uh heart rate you know has been all over the place and my my legs and my diet and everything it's just been weird you know it's tough you turn 50 <laughs> Things change. yeah
1: but i think yeah. i actually i think you're ready and i think you're ready to run a, a bq which i know is you know the primary goal here and you've been on the course before so you know the course so you have knowledge going into it I think you're ready to run a really good race. In fact, I think almost everyone on the team who's put in the time for this in this training cycle, you and Mike Fetterly and uh, Paul Rogers, and I think everyone, Rachel, are, are all ready to run a really good race there if they run a the smart race up at the up at the top 15, you know?
0: You know, I was looking at Mike's uh, workouts this morning, and he's doing that basically a set of 1600s, eight 1600s at a 630 pace. That's way faster. You know, that that's the workout I used to do to run a 310 marathon.
1: Yeah. Mike has had a great he's had a great training cycle, too. And then, you know, Mike,
0: Mike is now
1: 58 years old.
0: Yeah. Um, so, so that's that's amazing.
1: Yeah. He, he works very, very hard. And, um you know, like you, uh, Mike never misses a workout. Um You know, he hits he you know, in the training cycle, he does every workout as they're written and described. And I think he's ready to run a really good race as well. You know, I had had you guys doing, you know, some quad strength stuff all throughout the training cycle. So, you know, the downhill shouldn't be too bad on your legs when you get down to, you know, that 15-mile mark and you get that little climb. Um, I think everyone will be ready to do that.
0: Yeah, because there's really only one little hill Yeah. in that race. And if you could just focus on getting through that, you don't have to race it. Just get through it, um, even if you cough up 30 seconds a mile. The thing that still scares me is those last six miles. You know, I just haven't proved to myself in this cycle that I can run those last six miles at race pace. So that's uh that's still what I got to work on.
1: You know, I think you just have to again, and I think it it really depends on how everyone runs the top fifteen. You know, that steep part, right? And what's going to be left in your legs? And you know, and and again, you know, you and I are, you know, we both kind of agree that maybe you know, in that top fifteen, you 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 bank some minutes. But you have to bank you have to bank them wisely. you can't you know you can't run your you and I hate to say this, but you can't pull a Chalene and run your fastest half marathon and and then expect to you know carry it to twenty six so you know, bank a few minutes, but you have to bank them smart and I think you know how people run down that hill is important you know i I think you know high cadence, high cadence, feet under the center of mass, not getting the legs out in front of them. You know, the hill will give you the momentum so you don't have to work too hard and you can protect your quads, you know, by keeping, you know, by keeping that cadence high and and, and your feet, you know, underneath your center of mass rather than you know, hitting those long strides down the hill. I think if people do that, you know, run a good time, get down to that 15-mile mark, they'll still have some legs left for the end.
0: Right. So when you look at it, it's really only a 13-mile race. <laughs> <laughs> it is. You know,
1: it's that second. It's the second half marathon at this race.
0: Yeah, the first thirteen, like you said, I mean, it just drops. So the challenge is to stay off the gas pedal. Yeah, because you could easily go in there with, uh, you know, thirty seconds a mile. You know, you'd go in there with a twenty minute, <laughs> you know, or or you know, at least a ten minute in the in the bag. And I think that's probably too much. I think you probably want to go in with like you know, five to seven minutes in the bag.
1: Yeah, I think that, I think you're right there. You're right on there. I think anywhere between that three to seven minute area at 15 miles is going to be a good place to be because anything faster than that means you killed yourself coming down. And, you know, we've talked about that when preparing people for the Boston Marathon, this this race, you know, not a lot different in the first 15 miles, a little bit steeper, but, you know, it's still that whole downhill thing. And if you, you wear yourself out running
0: too fast because it seems easy, you have no legs at the end. Yeah. Th- this one's a little bit different because the hills are right from the start, yeah. the downhill, and they're consistent. They don't roll. Yeah. So once you get into a nice, uh, tight form, I think it doesn't do as much damage. Or that's what my experience was last year. So I, I, you know, I didn't feel the leg fatigue last year. I just ran out of gas last year from running too much. But uh, that's what I'm trying to avoid this year. Yeah, well, so, well, you, know.
1: you were in that I'm going to run you know twelve marathons in twelve days thing. So that was
0: yeah. Well, <laughs> that was, you know that was an interesting lesson because basically what I'm discovering is I spent eight months training to run ten minute miles and. <laughs> When I came back to trying to run eight minute miles, my body just didn't want to give up those 10 minute miles.
1: Yeah. It's, and it's funny because, you know, I was, you know, most of my training for this run across the country has just been, you know, long, slow stuff. And, uh, you know, so I'm not going into Pocatello with high expectations of running a fast race because, uh, you know, I, it's exactly what you said. I've been running all this long, slow stuff. And when I go out there and do some tempo work, my legs are like, I'm not so sure I want to do this.
0: Yeah. So it was interesting, uh, Last uh, a couple days ago when I ran, you know, we, we had like a 15 mile workout and uh, looking at the splits and you know, I was pretty depressed about that one because I just, I collapsed <laughs> at like eight and a half, nine miles. I just collapsed. But looking at the splits, I went out so fast. <laughs> I went out at like a 730 pace with Brian and Brian's been training hills. So when we hit the hills, he took off. I think it has something to do with the fact that I lost almost 20 pounds in the last three weeks might have something to do with that as well.
1: Yeah, your weight's down. I've trained you guys a little bit differently, you know, for this race than I have for other races. And I think there've been a lot more miles. There's been a lot more time involved with this training session. You know, a couple of weeks ago, you know, you're you're at the end of the training session, so your legs are tired. And, you know, you're tired. And, You know, now we're at that great point, you know, this week we're backing everyone down, we're starting to taper going in, and I think everyone gets there fresh, and I really think you're going to have a good race. I think you're going to surprise yourself and have
0: a really good race. I always like to go into races worried. Yeah. You know, because when I go in confident, that's when I blow up, right? (laughs) When I go in worried, that's when I have really good races, because that forces you to hold back. Right. To to think about it the whole time. You're worried about it until you get up into the high miles and then you have something left and you can close. But, uh yeah, so it's so it's good. I you know I feel good. You know, I've done what I can do, Jeff. Right. Yeah. I control the things that I can control.
1: That's right. As as the boys in Missouri say, the hay's in the barn.
0: That's right. I'm under I was about 179 this morning, which is the lightest I've been in years. wow that's great. So hopefully that'll help.
1: and And has Rachel been helping you?
0: Yeah, um, you know, a little bit, right? So I'm pretty easy to coach. I know what to do, but she's, she's been helping me by just reminding me what to do and also tweaking some stuff. You know, same thing you said a couple of years ago. I don't, I, I don't eat enough protein. Right. And so I'll go all day just eating fruit and vegetables. And then at 530 at night, I'll be starving. Yeah. And that's the wrong balance, right? She's like, you got to work in some protein for lunch. You got to work in some protein in the afternoon and, and some more healthy fats and, and don't be worried so much about calories. So, yeah, there's, so, yeah. there's a lot of
1: reasons for that. And it's not, not only a protein and fat, you know, are, are appetite satiators. It's, you know, protein is, is so key to muscle repair and, and building that, you know, if you're not getting enough protein, especially when you're in a, in a high training cycle, a high mileage training cycle, your muscles just aren't repairing the way
0: they should. Yeah, but on the other hand, by not, you know, it's it, you know, it's all it's about what you don't eat as well. Yeah. So by not eating the you know the the white bread and the pasta and the you know the high uh, in, inflammation stuff, as you guys, as the Paleo guys like to say, by not eating that stuff, I found that my uh, my tendonitis has gotten better. Right, so you know, I started this cycle running on a sore ankle, yeah, and with some peroneal tendonitis, and my ankles have been really, you know, achy, and my Achilles been really achy, and through this diet, I don't know if it's the weight loss or just the eating differently, but my tendonitis has all gone away pretty much.
1: Yeah, I think it's and it's probably really a combination of the two. You know, the weight loss because you're again you're at a better weight than you've been at in years. When you take all the processed stuff out of of the diet, and again, it reduces inflammation and it helps and you start eating the healthier things that help your body repair. We old guys, you know, for so long, we just, you know, didn't care about nutrition. And, you know, we didn't know what was going on. And I think, you know, now we're finding that if we are a lot smarter, especially as we get older, we recover better, we get stronger and we can run well without
0: injury. This was the other strange thing about this cycle was that it really was a short cycle. You know, it was, uh, sort of your classic 12 to 14 week cycle, which, which means you don't really get as much of a run up in terms of base building and, and threshold building, you know, before you jump right into the, into the lactate threshold stuff. So talk a little bit about how you, how do you, how you manage that? You know, how do you manage a 12 week cycle?
1: Mostly everyone who's gone to Pocatello this year, and especially you, maintains a pretty solid base. Even even in their off season, they're they're maintaining their base, they're maintaining their aerobic fitness, and so when I can, when I can take a guy like you and I say, okay, you're coming out of an injury, and now we're just at this point, and that was the case with you. We're just at this point where we can start building stuff and start putting the hard stuff in. First, we had to make sure the injury was okay, and you know we kept the ankle work up and all the strength stuff to make sure the injury was okay, and then you know when I got assured that the injury was okay, it's like, okay, what do we have to do? We You know, we really got to get Chris fast again. We really got to get Chris strong again. So it becomes about throwing, you know, the tempo stuff in earlier so you can start to build, you know, that that solid ability for turnover. We talked about this this morning on the team page and 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 what, you know, interval workouts do and what tempo workouts do. There's such a combination of great things, mental focus, coordination, you know, getting turnover done, teaching your body how to burn lactic acid faster at a higher rate of effort so it does it at a lower rate of effort so you can run easier and more comfortably. And for you, you know, we jumped into that because I know you have a big base. I'm really not concerned about, God, how many marathons have you run, Chris? 50, 60? Uh, 44. 44. I mean, with a, with a 44 marathon background, you know how to run long. You know, all we had to do was get you strong again this time. So a lot of the focus went to getting you strong again and then keeping keeping your long days up there. Yeah. And and that was the difference in the training cycle for you this time. I mean, you know, I could focus on you know, it's not like I'm training a first time marathon or in your case, you know, a guy who's run, you know, forty four marathons, his base is, is basically always there. And so it was just a matter of, okay, now we gotta fine tune it, get it strong so that you can, you know, take that base
0: and run it harder at, on race day. And and we jumped into the distance fast. We went like, I don't know, fourteen, eighteen, twenty.
1: Yeah. And again, that's just based on my knowledge of you and and your history. You know, for me to say, you know, okay, Chris, I want you to go out and run 14 miles zone two this weekend. You know, that's a no brainer for you. Uh, Right. You know, there's no there's no oh, my God, I have to run 14 miles. You know, you have the base always to cover that. And then the increase of the 16 and the 18, we're just running mileage for you that you're very, very comfortable doing. And so I could start that in a shorter period of time
0: because of your history. And even though some of those workouts were miserable, I just said, "Okay, I'm going to finish this workout, right? Because that's it." <laughs> yeah, you didn't have
1: we didn't have a lot of time, so you know you, you had to get them done, and you did, and you and it, you just you just got pro- progressively stronger, I think, as the training cycle went on. I I really think this is the best training cycle we've ever had.
0: Yeah, maybe maybe not my fastest race, but definitely uh, got through it without hurting myself so far. Wow. Knock on wood. But uh, yeah, I'm pretty proud of this cycle based on where I started. And where we're in and up here, so
1: yeah, I so think, we'll
0: see how it goes.
1: You know, we get that BQ at Pocatello, and then we'll we'll get faster for Boston again.
0: Yeah, throw some other marathons in the middle there. Yeah, so talk to those guys over at the prostate thing. See if they want to throw me a number for Marine Corps. I'll come down and join you.
1: You know, let me talk to them today.
0: Because I can raise money in a heartbeat. You know that.
1: Yeah, I know you raising money in a heartbeat. Um, let me talk to them today and see. Because I had I actually have one person in our group who tore his meniscus last week. Yikes. But I don't know if we can get the name changed on the registration and if I can, let me see if I can do that today.
0: All right. No, looking at the training schedule, I only see it a week at a time. Right. But it looked to me like we did some 3-week cycles, but mostly 2-week cycles yeah. on this sh- on this short calendar. Right. And we we didn't really step back that far in some of the bigger some of the bigger cycles. Right. Right. So it wasn't a big Gasp a breath. There was one of them that, that was awesome because I barely made it to that recovery week, but it's been pretty much a linear ramp with a two week cycle on this one to get it to make the date by what I'm seeing.
1: Yeah, Yeah. That goes hand in hand with, with now my basic, you know, training philosophy for everyone. I just think that the, the, the age grouper who has a job, has a family, has things to do a three week build cycle. Um, is too much. I think we, we see, you know, we start seeing a pattern of I'm tired. I'm achy. I'm painful. And so that third week in the build cycle really doesn't have a lot of benefit to it. So we can take two big build weeks, reduce it by about 60, not by about 40%. So we're running about 60% with more intensity in that, in that recovery week. You know, I think people are recovering faster to get into the next build week. Right. And. We're seeing a lot less injuries doing it that way as well.
0: Yeah. Let's give people the links to find what you're doing and uh, how to reach out.
1: Obviously, our our team website is prsfit.com. My email is prsfit at gmail.com. And um, our Run Across the Country website is m2epc.com, and that stands for Miles to End Prostate Cancer. It's m2epc.com.
0: And everybody who is uh, my gender and my age should go uh, get a test, right? That's right. And, and, and come
1: out to see us. If, if you look at the map and you see the cities that we're going to, um, come on out because we're going to be setting up free screenings and um, having some fun at the, at the events that we're doing in those cities.
0: All right, man. We'll talk to you soon. All right, Chris. Thanks. It was great talking hey, to you. Cheers. Cheers. Hitch up your tights because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. Can you qualify for Boston? Where is that line between mental and physical ability? So you listen to me talking about the dark place. You hear me making declarative statements like, Anyone who is willing to do the work can qualify for Boston. And you wonder, What about me, Chris? You ask, I'm an age grouper with no competitive racing experience. I started running to get in shape as I got older. I started running to get in shape. Then I got hooked. Then I wanted more. What about me? Well, I think you can do it, (laughs) but I don't know you. Let's talk about it. Running marathons for a goal is a physical and mental challenge that you must understand to judge the limit of your ability. I'll tell you one thing that is almost universal. You can do more than you think you can. For some reason, as humans, we let our big brains, as Vonnegut called them, that dog's breakfast, we let that get in the way of accomplishing stuff. And the fact that I have qualified for Boston as many times as I have continues to surprise me. Most of my success initially probably comes from the simple fact that no one told me I couldn't do it. I didn't really think about it at the time. I didn't have any marathon experience, and I lucked into an appropriate plan. I got lucky, and I didn't get injured. I learned as I went. I tinkered. I fixed stuff. I tinkered, and I broke stuff. I tried to game the system. I lost. I tried just doing long runs or just doing speed work once a week, and I crashed and burned more often than not. But through that process, I learned a lot about my machine and my experiment of one, and the physical and mental aspects of putting together a successful qualifying campaign. And sometimes I get asked for advice on this. Mostly people will just tell me they could never qualify. As a boss I had used to say, some people think they can, some people think they can't, and they're both usually right. The point being that until you think you can do it, or at least set that judgment aside, you won't be able to. At the core, it's a manifestation of fear. Fear of failure, fear of ridicule, fear of success, fear of the work required. Until you can set all that aside, you're screwed. It depends on how your brain is wired, but there are strategies for this. First, take on the project of running a qualified marathon as a learning project, not as a goal-based project. Focus on the process, not the outcome. Take the emotional weight out of the outcome Just commit to the training and see what you learn. Second, if your head is full of garbage fear, maybe you need to write all that down somewhere on a what's the worst that can happen list to take the emotional weight out of it. Likewise, write down all the benefits. For me, the benefits vastly outweigh the worst case scenarios. And third, you have to have a why. Why do you want to do it? I needed to prove something to myself. What's your why? Without it, you'll struggle to commit. Let's do a fun Socratic exercise. I'm going to break you Boston wannabes into three categories. For each of these categories, I'll define a set of attributes, and I'll tell you what it's going to take for you to qualify. I'm going to use categories that they gave my kids at swimming lessons when they were little, because that's just the way I am. First category is starfish. Let's start at the bottom of the pool, so to speak. I'm going to call you starfish. You're more than 45 minutes away from your qualifying time. You have never done speed work or any advanced training. Maybe you've done a marathon for charity and it took you the better part of a day to finish it. You may have never even run a marathon. Maybe you've got some physical limitations like weight or form... Or maybe you're just not designed to run faster. And I'm wondering why you decided to qualify for Boston, but hey, who am I to judge? I don't know if you can or not, but you've got your work cut out for you. You need to budget one to two years to build strength and speed and base. First things first, though, you need to get your body ready. You need to find someone who will break you down to zero Start from scratch and build up your form from the bottom. You're going to need to relearn how to run because you'll need new mechanics to make the big leap required. The first year will be fixing your form, your weight, getting stronger, building a good aerobic base. You'll become very familiar with Arthur Lydiard and heart rate training. Lots of slow controlled miles with strength training and drills. And once you have figured your mechanics out, and you have your base built, you will start layering on the advanced training to build your racing strength and speed. And this will mean quality, speed, tempo, and pace runs, and lots of them. And you'll probably see a 50% improvement or more in your first race. But it will probably take one to two serious training cycles after that to get your ticket punched. And at the end of this long build, you'll know whether or not you can do it. So rock on, my starfish friends. If you're willing to take two plus years out of your life for a rebuilding project, you can qualify for Boston. Next we have the guppies. The next group in the pool I'm going to refer to as guppies. Guppies are a bit more gifted than the starfish, but haven't figured it out yet. Maybe they are casual, recreational runners like I was when I first set out to conquer the marathon. Guppies have a subscription to that popular running magazine with the tanned models posed mid-stride on the cover. Maybe they've heard about it, but they've never really done serious speed work. Guppies probably have a decent base of 15-20 miles a week. They may have been at it for a year or so. Maybe they've even done a marathon using one of those just-want-to-finish plans. What's different about you guppies is that you have some athleticism. Maybe you played soccer or ran cross-country when you were younger. The key indicator is that when you run your local 10K, your pace is at or below your marathon qualifying pace. So you've got potential. You just need to apply yourself. If you run the marathon, you have less than a 45-minute gap to overcome. All the guppies need to do is get a decent advanced training plan and stick with it. This plan should have you up at least into the 40 to 50-mile range on your peak weeks. This plan should have two hard workouts a week and a long run. You guppies should join a running club with a decent coach you need to spend some time training with the veterans and learning how to spend time in the dark place. With one or two good training cycles, you'll have your boss and qualifier, guaranteed, unless you hurt yourself or go mental or have some other sort of adverse conditions gang up on you. Mostly, this transformation is the ability to handle the physical and emotional stress of making yourself very uncomfortable two to three times a week, and learning from that, and growing from that. Guppies are diamonds in the rough. They just need a little commitment and polish to toe the line in Hockington. And these are the people I'm talking to when I cajole. Anyone can qualify if you're willing to do the work. That's you. The next group of kids I'm going to call Barracudas. Now, you folks are already in the thick of things and just need some direction. You've trained with an advanced marathon plan, and although on paper everything added up to a BQ, you had some spectacular failures with crashing or cramping or injuries or whatnot. You've probably come within 15 minutes of your goal, but you just can't close the deal. Maybe it's just bad luck. Maybe the truth is you're terrified of success, so you keep sabotaging yourselves. You need to get out of your own head, my friend. It's only training. For most barracudas, finding the right coach is probably your best path to success. They have the ability to train and race. They're just not closing. You need a coach that will mentor you not only physically but mentally. You'll find it much easier to race successfully when you have someone you can offload the stinking contents of your brain onto. A good coach will know how to serve up your plan so it builds success on top of success and builds confidence with fitness. So schooling it all up. Once you get past the point of understanding your why and committing to the work, you can qualify for boss and or at least get close. I'll guarantee the journey will change your life and will change the way you think about yourself. And make no mistake, when I say work, I mean pain and effort, and time. You will have to commit to one to two hours of quality training almost every day. For you starfish, it'll be a two, three year journey. For you guppies, it'll take six to nine months. What's really cool is that even if you never meet your goal, you'll have seen what you can do. You'll have found your edge. What you realize when you stagger across the line with your arms in the air, is that it was never about the finish. It was about the journey. The value comes from those long runs in the freezing rain and those late nights at the high school track. That's where you'll find your true self. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep
1: and miles to go before I sleep. And miles to go before I sleep.
0: Well, now that was fun, wasn't it? I'm bugging out with taper madness. Having trouble sleeping. Grumpy and snappy. You know the drill. I just want to get there and race. I'm feeling confident, but anything can happen. So, my big announcement, drum roll, is that Jeff had some people bail on him, so I decided to take a number for the Marine Corps Marathon. And I've run it before. It's an awesome race. Eddie Marathon is going to be down there too, so that'll be fun. And I did this mostly because well, I'm sick of losing friends to cancer. <laughs> uh, maybe it's my age group, but every couple weeks someone else I know is being diagnosed or going under the under the knife and it's and it's just not fair. It makes me mad. And I can't do anything about it, but I can help raise awareness, especially for prostate cancer because if you catch it early, it's curable. All you have to do is get tested. And I know a lot of my listeners are guys in my general age group, and I'm talking to you right now, today. Make an appointment. Go get tested. Read about the tests. Read about the symptoms, because I don't want to lose you. I am accepting donations for the race if you want to throw some coin at me, but only if you're sick of losing friends to cancer and you can afford a couple bucks. The link is on my website and right here in the show notes. Which you get if you're on my mail list, my mailing list. I got an email last week from the ASICs guys too, and they were wondering if I wanted to be considered for a comp entry to the New York City Marathon. You know, they'd kick me out and give me a number, and all I'd have to do is wear their stuff and blog about it. And I was like, gee, I don't know, I'd have to think about, yes, yes, of course, where do I sign? So we'll see if that pans out. Coming up next week, I buttonholed Rachel, my nutrition coach, to chat through a case study on eating healthy. And I also have a few listener-created interviews in the can for when we switch to our new show format. And next time we speak, I'll either be celebrating or making up excuses. But either way, I've had an awesome summer. And I'll have a story to tell. Cheers. Thanks for listening, folks. I do appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free service for you because I like writing and telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at Gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm K T Russell, and as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlive.com and most if not all of this content is posted out there if you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when i publish a show in a beautiful html wrapper you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site you can find it there and it also has all the links to everything and everyone that i talk to and about other than that my friends thank you for the attention do epic stuff and let me know if i can help ciao